Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to the 10th episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, John de Vere, 13th Earl of Oxford. Yep. I'm looking forward to this one. Oh, he's, he's, and it's long. It's <laughs> 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 on a bit. But obviously, first of all, we have a little something to do. Oh, the, the quiz. 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 Ooh, the quiz. <laughs> Sir Edward Poynings. Yeah. If you remember, it was quite busy. I did try to make it fairly easy because this was a very busy episode. Wasn't it just? Okay. Yes. So, question one. Okay. What famous family was his mother from? His mother was Elizabeth Paston. Yes. <laughs> famous for the Paston letters. <laughs> yep. Question two. He was made governor of two English-held but French-named cities. What were they? Calais. Yes. And Dauphiné. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Next. Number three. What famous event did he help decide where it was being held? That would be... The Field of the Cloth of, cloth of Gold. Yes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> See, I told you it wasn't going to be too bad. No, I thought it was going to be all in 1503. <laughs> Which job was he doing? No, I used to hate that in my history classes. It's like, that is not how you teach history. That would make history boring. Okay. When he dined with Charles V, who at this time was the Archduke Charles... What were he and Charles wearing? They were wearing their Knight of the Garter regalia. Yay! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is absolutely hilarious. We're going to get all dressed up in our costumes. Yes. So they didn't dribble food all down it. And finally, one of his most important positions was as lieutenant and later governor of which ports? Do you want all five of them? No, just the same. <laughs> the the yes. Yay, 100%. <laughs> so it's Hastings, New Romney, Hythe, Dover, Sandwich, and then Rye originally, but not now. Hmm. But yeah. Lovely pub in Rye. Oh, is it? Called the Mermaid. I love pubs. <laughs> we don't sing in our pubs, though. We don't sing in our pubs. Irish people sing in their pubs. We don't oh. sing in our pubs. Oh, my grandpa, who was from England, he was from York. He said he used to love a good sing-up at the pub. Yeah, but not anymore. Maybe some pubs. Yeah, yeah this was in the, oh gosh, like, I don't know, 1920s? Yeah, I mean, you've got, then the jukebox came in, didn't it? Next brother and all that, all that went. Yay. Yeah, now it's all pub quizzes. Yeah, but there you go, 100% again. Well done. Better than me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you were quite generous with those questions. And now, on with the show. Come with me, if you will, to King Henry VI, Part 3, Act 3, Scene 3. Call him my king, by whose injurious doom my elder brother, Lord Aubrey Vere, was done to death, 
and more so my father, even in his downfall of his mellowed years, when nature brought him to the door of death. No, Warwick, no, while life upholds this arm, this arm upholds the house of Lancaster. And that is Mr. De Vere's life in a nutshell. If we start with a quick look at his family, because the De Veres go back a long way. The first of the De Vere line, Aubrey, and that's, this is a family name, there are quite a few Aubreys, appears to have come from Vere in Normandy, and it's quite likely that he fought in the Battle of Hastings. Really? Oh, that's going back a bit. This is, this is a quick tour, don't worry, I'm not going to do every single one from then. <laughs> In 1086, he was granted land in East Anglia, which was to remain the De Vere stronghold. And in fact, Headingham Castle, where our John De Vere died, was recorded in the Doomsday Book as belonging to Aubrey. Headingham, by the way, later became the home of William Cecil, Lord Burley. Aww. The third Aubrey did a deal with Empress Matilda. He would fight on her side in return for an earldom. And he got his earldom and then moved over to Stephen's side. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They were they were awful in the old days, weren't they? Thank you very much, Stephen. Stephen. Henry the Second confirmed his title, so you know it wasn't a bad move. A few other De Veres followed, including two who fought at Cressy and Poitiers, and then there was Robert De Vere, the ninth Earl of Oxford, who was made Marquess of Dublin and then Duke of All Ireland in 1386. But then he blotted his copybook by repudiating his wife Philippa de Cousy who was descended from Edward III and was young, beautiful and noble in favour of a bohemian saddler's daughter called Lane Crone, who was, <laughs> who was short, ignoble and hideous. Oh, I wonder if that's truthful or people are just mad and being nasty. She was common. That was her, that was her problem, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> being common makes you hideous in, in, in Tudor times or before. It took a while for the family to bounce back from this. However, the third Earl fought at Agincourt and was admitted to the Order of the Garter. And then our John de Vere's father, also called John de Vere, of course, was the 12th Earl, and he was born three months after the death of his father. He was made the ward of the Duke of Exeter, who advised him to marry Elizabeth Howard in 1425. He was 17, she was 14. Unfortunately, it turned out that although Exeter had the wardship, he didn't have the right to marry off John, since, as you, you said, these things are done separately sometimes, yes. aren't they? Yes, they are. John Senior, as we'll call him, was fined £2,000 for marrying without a licence. Ouch! Yeah, well, this was a huge sum, but it was worth it, as Elizabeth brought a large number of estates into the De Vere family, all in the East Anglian area. They had eight children reaching adulthood. Aubrey was the eldest, then three girls, then our John, and then three boys. Ooh, big family. Yeah. I don't know how many didn't. I was going to say, how many? <laughs> Up until 1462, John Senior was very happy to avoid any factional disputes. He kept his head down and got on with his life. He even tried to keep out of regional disputes between the Dukes of Norfolk, John Mowbray, and Suffolk, William de la Pole father of John de la Pole of episode four. Who was actually interesting rather than his son John de la Pole, who was not. <laughs> well, yeah. It's a, although he was at the parliament that condemned Suffolk, because you'll remember that he was exiled without trial. Yes. And then he met with a rather unfortunate murder stroke execution <laughs> on the boat crossing the channel. Oh, just the idea, just the terms. They hacked his head off. 
<laughs> hacked doesn't imply you do it in one, does it? Well, hacked involves multiple strokes. The actual terms that I read was by a number of strokes, they hacked and hewed his head off. Hacked and hewed. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, around this point, John Senior appears to have switched sides since the Duke of Norfolk was forced, forced to pledge that he would do no harm to several people, including the Duchess of Suffolk and John de Vere. You're not a nice person when you have to say, then I'm not going to hurt people. Yes, I promise. I, I, yeah. I promise. Are his fingers crossed behind his back? I should imagine. He seems to have, um, this is uh, John Devere Senior, he seems to have been trying to remain locally on the side that was winning at court. But as the civil war became inevitable, this was increasingly becoming a good plan. With Henry VI's breakdown and the return of Richard, Duke of York, Devere was among those who made up the ruling council. So when Henry VI recovered and Somerset was released from prison, tensions between him and York led to the Battle of St Albans, and we covered all this in Jasper's episode. Both the Duke of Norfolk and de Vere were late to the battle, which some have speculated showed a reluctance to take a side. Hmm. Over, over the course of the War of the Roses between 1459 and Towton in 1461, both Viscounts, all the Dukes and ten of the fourteen Earls fought on at least one occasion. And of the four earls who didn't fight, one was abroad, one was too young, one was described as innocence, which I think is the, I think that's what Edward Plantagenet was described as. Mm-hmm. And then there was De Vere, the Earl of Oxford, who didn't seem to have an excuse, he just didn't, didn't, just didn't, didn't go. do it. No, didn't want to go. He then didn't turn up to any parliaments, he didn't sign an oath of allegiance to Henry the Sixth, which he would have done had he been there. He seems to have used the excuse of ill health to avoid things. And a document from 1461 lists the nobility by their supposed affiliation. And de Vere appears in the neutral column, and he is the only earl to do so. Hmm. I mean, even John de la Pole took a side. Yes, eventually. <laughs> this was probably a sensible move. I mean, he wasn't powerful enough to gain much by joining in, but he was far enough up the ladder to lose everything should he find himself on the wrong side. But he, yeah, he is a John de la Pole and then some. And yet... And yet, in February 1462, both John de Vere and his eldest son, Aubrey, were tried and convicted of treason by the notorious Sir John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester, who's not as nice as the name Tiptoft would, would imply. Oh. John and Aubrey were both beheaded. Ooh. Yeah, so what happened? Why, after so many years of lack of commitment of any sort, did he suddenly decide to kill the king? Annoyingly, all the chronicles tell a different tale. Oh, lovely. Edward had been on the throne for a year, and an invasion led by Margaret of Anjou was expected imminently, and some say that de Vere's plan was to accompany Edward as he travelled to subdue the north, then attack the army from the rear once they came in sight of the Lancastrian army. But why? John had shown no interest in either side before. I mean, very conspicuously so. Well, it seems that it was the actions of the son that dragged the father to the block. Aubrey had a much stronger Lancastrian sympathies than his father. Oh, could you imagine the guilt? Not for long. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's worth seeing the upside of it. (laughs) Yeah, Aubrey had much stronger Lancastrian sympathies, and it appears he was in touch with Margaret of Anjou, and it's thought that the impetus for the conspiracy came from him, and his poor dad just got enmeshed in the repercussions. So after years of fence-sitting, John was executed for treason. 
Scotland. He was so frail that he had to be helped to the block by two priests. Oh, wow. Yeah. How horrible is that? One onlooker was heard to call it a piteous sight. We still went to see it, though, notice. Of course. Well, we should note, like, yes, people used it as sort of an entertainment, but at the same time, if you were in the area, you were expected to be there and you could get in trouble for not attending. Oh, right. It's like uh, Stalin's rallies. Yeah. It was supposed to be an encouragement for you to be loyal, so it was something that you were expected not only to go yourself, but you were expected to bring your children to see the king's justice. Mm. I know. So if you didn't have an excuse and somebody ratted you out, you could find yourself in some serious trouble. Yeah. The more you look into this this time... The more you're glad you're not there. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> So what did John de Vere Sr. bequeath to his son? Well, by marrying Elizabeth Howard, he'd increased the family estate and the local political influence. But on the other hand, the family was now tainted by the conviction for treason. Right. And so would always be regarded with a certain amount of suspicion. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. I'm wondering how long that actually lasts. If you go back through history, there have been so many families that were tainted for treason. And... How many generations does that actually follow you for? Well, actually, as, we've, as we see, he wasn't attainted. He was he had the taint of treason. Oh, okay. Yeah, he wasn't actually attainted. But you may be thinking that I'm spending a long time on someone who isn't our John de Vere, but this event had a huge impact on our John mm -hmm. and his decisions, as you would expect. Yes. And as Shakespeare pointed out at the beginning of the episode, the historian James Ross said that the event made the man. And I think it's true. Anyway, let's see what our John de Vere makes of his life. Is he a fence straddler, like his dad? Or a political firebrand, like his brother? switch off thinking this is going to be John de la Pole all over again. <laughs> I'll spoil the cliffhanger by saying he is more like his brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very I almost much feel so. sorry for people listening to the John de la Pole episode. I was bored researching him. <laughs> like, how do I make this even interesting enough for people to leave the episode running? <laughs> it shows we don't cheat with our picking of the people. Because why, why the hell would we have chosen him? <laughs> We've added in people that nobody really wants to know about. Sorry, I'll apologise now. <laughs> no, he's sorry. the only one. All the rest, all the rest are riveting. <laughs> John Tavere was nineteen when his father and brother were executed. John's mother, Elizabeth, had been in custody, but she was freed in May fourteen sixty-two, three months after the execution, when the king accepted that she was good and faithful. But although she was allowed to hold all her own manners, her dower was not assigned to her. And to explain. Elizabeth was allowed the land that she held by gift, purchase or inheritance, i.e. her own right, but not the dower, i.e. the share of her late husband's money uh, and property. Right. 
that by right should have belonged to her on her husband's death. And the fact that Elizabeth Dow was not forthcoming was contrary to the law and custom of England. So it can be seen as something of a slap on the wrist from Edward. But he was remarkably lenient, usually, for those who rose up against him. I think John Senior and Aubrey copped it, really, from the fact that they were the first nobles to betray Edward, having seemingly accepted him up to that point. Right. But our John de Vere was not attainted, although the possibility hung over the family for quite some time. So, you know, it must have been such a worrying time. I guess so. It's not like they had a statute of limitations. Hmm. Whenever the king decided to do it, he could just do it. Yeah. Initially, several of the De Vere manors were granted to others, which implied that Edward IV was considering what to do. And in fact, he toyed with the idea of handing over the whole estate to his brother Richard, especially since Edward was keen to build up Richard's portfolio of property, since the Duke of Clarence kept demanding more and more and more, and Richard was being left behind. I'm not impressed with the Duke of Clarence. Neither am I. <laughs> I don't come across anyone who is. But in January 1464, John was allowed full rights to his father's estates. So it was, which was lucky. I mean, plenty weren't. Edward handed control of John de Vere to Warwick, and I'm not sure why, because he was already 19 when his father died. I mean, he, he would be seen as, as an adult. Yeah, unless it was more of a custody issue because of the treason. Maybe it was decided just to keep an eye on him. That seems to be the only reason I can think of, which, uh, which backfires later on. Oh. <laughs> as you can imagine. But he was lucky, really, because um, Edward gave control of two of his younger brothers to John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester. <gasps> no. Their father's executioner. Oh, my God. I don't know how old they were. I mean, younger than 19. But you do get the feeling with Edward that he doesn't see how his actions will affect people, which is quite a common trait with those of a narcissistic personality. Yeah, because that's going to have consequences down the road. Those kids presumably would grow up probably hating the person that put them under their father's executioner indeed that's why this is such a long episode as edward seems to seems to find every possibility to make himself incredibly unpopular hmm. anyway warwick married uh, de vere off to his sister margaret neville because everyone's marrying warwick women at this time mm -hmm. and de vere got the sister which i suppose is quite a coup for someone with the suspicion of taint against him mm-hmm but Warwick must have been confident that de Vere would manage to hold on to his land. And we're not precisely sure when they got married. It's sometime between 62 and 64. But we know that John de Vere had been forgiven by 1465 when he attended the enthronement of George Neville as Archbishop of York as an honoured guest. Well, he's now part of the Neville family. Right. The seating arrangement showed a lack of basic consideration, though. On the Archbishop's left sat John de Vere... And John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester. Oh, goodness. <laughs> He's meant to be an honoured guest. You'd think he'd be able to say, I don't <laughs> want to sit anywhere near that man. I mean, presumably they were introduced on Have you met Mr. Tiptoft? You'd think, yes, I'm bloody Yes, have. I have. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I was going to itemise all the food that was cooked for this feast. It's going to be a long episode, so I won't. But it's all listed on George Neville's Wikipedia page, if you're interested, because it's a gout fest, if ever there was one. <laughs> Nothing but meat. <laughs> Nothing but meat. And strange stuff. Egrets, porpoises, um, Aww, cranes, all sorts dolphins. of weird stuff. Seals. Hmm. It just seems they seem to have just working their way through the animal kingdom, I think, in alphabetical order. As long as it's not human. No mention of human. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they would have mentioned it. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, the first thing that George de Vere did on attaining his earldom was to rebury his father and brother, or at least that's one interpretation. The term used is terment, which could mean reburial, or it could mean getting a license to be given the spiked heads for burial with the bodies. Ah, because they were not they weren't buried on the de Vere estates until 1492, so maybe terment does mean is the latter definition, adding the heads to the bodies. Oh, jeez. Mm. But here we get an insight into John's reaction to what happened to his family, given that was the first thing he did. Another thing that uh, he was quick to do was to gain a repeal in the Parliament of 1464 of the 1388 Act by the Lancastrian Henry IV, attainting John's ancestor, Robert de Vere, Duke of Ireland, and he's the one that married that short, ignoble, hideous woman. (laughs) (laughs) So having a Yorkist king, you know, had its uses. But you can see he was very keen on his family name and making sure that there was no, no scandal. Right. In it. De Vere then chased several claims for land, which are too complicated and frankly too dull to go into. So don't bother with that. But John seems to have kept up his dad's policy of friendly relations with his powerful neighbours, because we've seen how local disputes can escalate and drag others in, in with the Percys and the Nevilles up north. Yeah. I mean, given the stain on his name, he managed quite remarkably to avoid royal suspicion and was able to further his family's interest. Yeah. If you read through the past and letters and some of the court documents, I got the feeling that everybody was fighting everybody if you owned land. And they would just show up and take the house. They'd evict everybody out of the house and take it. Well, that's, yeah, it did seem to be saying... This is quite surprising how he's managing to, to walk this line mm-hmm. between different families, the ones that he's surrounded by. Yeah. But, 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 it is now 1469, and a rift is appearing between Edward IV and Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, as was covered in Jasper's episode. And John Tevere is married to Warwick's sister. But then, so is Richard. No, Richard is not at not, this moment. No, no, not yet. The deeds of one at this time have huge ramifications for the many. Up until this point, John de Vere has been doing all right under the Yorkist. He was made Knight of the Bath at the coronation of Elizabeth Woodville in May 1465 and was the Grand Chamberlain on that occasion. Generally, though, he kept away from court, as his old dad had done, and he concentrated on local matters. However, as soon as the split between Edward IV and Warwick became apparent to him, de Vere showed where his allegiance lay. And maybe it was because he was married to a Neville, but probably it was the fact that Edward IV had executed his father and brother, and John had then callously been made to sit next to his executioner at a dinner party, which would weigh on your mind. Yeah, and his brothers were with that man. Mm. We know that in July 1468, De Vere availed himself of a general pardon that was being offered by King Edward, but frustratingly, we don't know what he'd done, what he's being pardoned for. And he got the pardon, but in November he was arrested and sent to the Tower. <laughs> Where, this is unfortunately, where he was said to have confessed much things, which seems to have led to other people being arrested and executed. De Vere was kept in irons, so we may assume that he he was tortured. When we look at his later actions, he doesn't seem the type to grasp, except under enhanced interrogation, shall we say. Mm -hmm. He had been released by January 1469, with sureties imposed for his good behaviour and benefited from another general pardon in April, which implies that he didn't behave particularly well. Oh, jeez. 
And again, we don't know what he was up to between January and April. He keeps being pardoned for things, but we don't know what he's done. Well, that and you would think after everything he's been through, I'm not surprised he'd be behaving badly towards that king. Yeah, I mean, I'm using behaving badly in inverted commas. <laughs> he's, he's pretty much got it coming, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to wonder what part he would have played, if any, if Edward hadn't executed members of his family. Yeah. But all this was before Warwick had publicly shown his hand. And John de Vere may have had a more pragmatic reason for encouraging Warwick to break with Edward. She would have been aware that Warwick was slipping down the, that greasy pole. I mean, first, Edward's clandestine marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, which was a humiliation for Warwick, who was broken in that other marriage. Then Edward siding with the Burgundians on the advice of Elizabeth's father, mm-hmm. rather than with the French on the advice of Warwick. Then Edward's refusal to allow his brother George, Duke of Clarence, the young Edward Plantagenet's father, to marry Warwick's daughter. So if Warwick lost his place at court, where would that leave those who had marital links to the Neville family? Right. It really is a web. It is, and people have multiple reasons for doing things, I think, don't they? I mean, there's an altruistic reason. You killed my dad. And a more pragmatic reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the hell am I going to do without you? Mm-hmm. So on the 4th of July, De Vere joined Warwick and Clarence at Sandwich, but it doesn't appear to have sailed with them to Calais to witness the marriage of Clarence and Isabel, Warwick's daughter. 24th of July, again, as we heard in Jasper's episode, the Battle of Edgecott briefly made Edward IV Warwick's prisoner, but it didn't last. Edward was soon back in power, maybe a little chastened, and John Paston, of the Letters family, wrote to his mother in October 1469, saying, The king himself hath good language of the lords Clarence, Warwick, and of my lords York and Oxenford, so that's obviously De Vere, saying that he be his best friends, but his household men have other language. <laughs> in other words, there's a public line and a private line, <laughs> and they weren't the same. I'm not sure who the York is in that case, because you know, Richard of Shrewsbury wasn't made Duke of York until 1473, and the previous one, the one that was going for the throne, had died in 1460, so there should have been a bit of a gap there. So I don't know who the York is, but anyway. Yeah, like I said, when you're reading the past in letters, you almost need a list on the side of who became what when in order to mm. find out who they're speaking about. Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? Because often they have the same first name as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need it. The 13th or the 14th. <laughs> yes, it's almost as if they do it deliberately just to annoy us. <laughs> in March 1470, another rebellion in which Warwick was the string puller behind the scenes erupted in the north, and it failed, and Warwick and Clarence were forced to feed to France, and this time John de Vere soon followed them. James Ross speculates that John Devere's role may have been underestimated in the past, and could he have been the one who encouraged Warwick to switch sides from Edward IV to Henry VI? Hmm. So up until this point, Warwick had been against Edward, but was pushing for Clarence to gain the throne. Yes. And Devere was in a unique position because he had marital links to Warwick, but also strong Lancastrian credentials. Yes. He was in contact with Margaret of Anjou, we know that, and he may have pointed out that if Warwick wanted to rule through a puppet king, I mean, who was more puppety, Edward IV or Henry VI? <laughs> yeah, how much did he have to do with Warwick agreeing to go down on his knees before Margaret? And how much did he have to do with her accepting his apology? After 15 minutes. <laughs> of yelling at Because <laughs> Margaret said of John de Vere that he had suffered much thing for King Henry's quarrels. Well, he had. I mean, his imprisonment, possible torture, the remorse of sending others to their deaths. Mm-hmm. And the execution of his dad and, and brother. 
So now we have the unlikely alliance between Warwick and Margaret of Anjou, and Margaret's awful son being pledged to Warwick's daughter Anne, and that's the Anne that later marries Richard III, and who may have commissioned the Rouse Rolls, which contained the picture of Edward Plantagenet. <laughs> Everything's linked. <laughs> I like playing the linking game. They made plans to invade England, and Warwick, Clarence, John de Vere, and Jasper Tudor, as you know, as well as others, I mean, they weren't superheroes, they didn't just go the four of them, they landed in Devon with the intention of springing Henry VI from prison. Whereupon, to cut a long story short, Edward IV fled for Holland, and Henry was released. And that's one of the occasions, remember, when Jasper was busy raising troops in Wales while all the excitement was going on. Well. <laughs> right. <laughs> De Vere was one of the people who escorted a shambling and confused Henry VI to Westminster, and he bore the sword of state at his crowning. But better still, he was appointed Constable of England, and do you know why he would have been so pleased with this appointment? No. One of the people, one of the very first people, that he was called upon to try oh, and sentence was Tip-toft. Sir John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester. Oh, that would be so satisfying. He was found hiding up a tree disguised as a shepherd. But why a shepherd would be hiding up a tree? <laughs> he's, standing, he's up his tree going, no, 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 I'm a shepherd. We always, we always sit in trees. Why Why do they? Okay, so it's him who was the other one. Charles II also climbed up he a tree. Climb up tree. Yeah. It doesn't seem to work. <laughs> we don't know that because all the times it did work. Oh, we yes. No. Yeah. Do you know why elephants paint their toenails red? No, I... To hide in cherry trees. Have you ever seen an elephant in a cherry tree? No. See how good they hide? No, I haven't. <laughs> That's one of my niece's <laughs> jokes. <laughs> well, Tiptoff was an interesting character. He was a renowned intellectual. He was known as the Butcher of England. And he impaled people. Oh, jeez. And I shall just leave that hanging there for the time, since he'll have his own episode. I didn't think there'd be enough on him, but there's a whole book about him, so... So we're adding him to the list. I think he's got to be there. I uh, hope I don't pull him. That sounds like a very disturbing amount of research, it or is. disturbing type of research, I guess I should say. Yeah, but fascinating, though, <laughs> from what I've heard of him. Yeah, you can imagine the great sense of retribution Devere felt at being able to pronounce judgment on this man. It's probably a bit like, you know, when Jasper Tudor found that um, the man who'd killed his father mm-hmm. had blundered into his into his hands. Well, well, well. <laughs> we meet again. <laughs> During the readaption of Henry VI, Devere's main role was local. He was the only prominent Lancastrian in East Anglia, the other big families being John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. Henry Bourchier, Earl of Essex, and John de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, who were all prominent Yorkists. I mean, John de la Pole may have been whatever you wanted him to be, but he was Edward IV's brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. De Vere spent a jolly time rewarding his supporters, including the letter-writing Pastons. But yeah, by the way, he signed some of the letters to Paston with, with the term, You're a special true-hearted friend, Aww. which was a nice break from the usual trope. I mean, they're always a bit gushy, aren't they? But it's, it's a trope. Yes. Yes. Things. Given that he was surrounded by potential enemies, he seems to have done pretty well, to the extent that when Edward IV was looking for somewhere to land, when he came back to reclaim the crown, he was advised by his followers not to land in East Anglia. Instead, he went to North Yorkshire, so he must have got enough followers to make it dangerous to do so. Mm-hmm. That de Vere was thoroughly committed to Henry's cause, or at least the cause of keeping Edward out, which may, which may not be the same thing, 
is shown by the fact that when Edward offered Warwick a pardon, De Vere told Warwick under no circumstances to accept it. Um, I don't suppose there are many who dare to speak with Warwick like that. No. <laughs> Quite a formidable man. But Edward's back and he's marching south. The events leading up to the Battle of Barnet were a bit, a bit farcical, as were the battle itself. De Vere's men attempted to meet up with Warwick's army, but Warwick had shut himself in Coventry and was refusing to fight. So when Edward advanced on him, De Vere didn't have enough men to put up a fight, so he was just forced to leg it. So is this is this the first time he's led people in battle, or is this... Yes, it must be. Yeah. We haven't mentioned it before. We haven't, but... No, we haven't had any battles. Okay. That he no, that he's been involved in. James Ross described the Battle of Barnet as the low point in De Vere's career. <laughs> I covered it in Jane Jasper's episode, but it's worth going into it since the Lancastrians would have won if it hadn't been for De Vere. Although initially he was the reason why they were winning. The battle was fought in thick mist. De Vere was on one end of the battle line, and he was fighting Baron Hastings. His men beat Hastings' men and put them to flight. So you know, so far so good. Mm-hmm. But no one else in the battlefield knew this because the visibility was so poor that they weren't able to cash in on the boost to morale that that, that would have brought. Right. They must have been a really, really thick mist. And although De Vere's men chased fleeing Yorkists and then got they then got sidetracked plundering the bodies and ransacking Barnet, <laughs> and De Vere apparently ran about yelling at them, trying to get them back in line. You have to imagine it like trying to corral children in kindergarten. <laughs> you know, no sooner have you got a little group and you go and get some more, the first lot have ambled away. But anyway, he must have had a, you know, quite a hefty voice because he managed to gather 800 of his men and point them in the direction of the battlefield. But during their absence, the whole battle line had rotated so that when de Vere arrived back to where he thought he should be, he'd actually come up behind Montague, uh, Warwick's brother. They're on side. And yes, they're inside. And in the mist, Montague mistook de Vere's badge of star with rays for Edward's son in Splendour oh. and started firing on de Vere's men. De Vere's men started growing treachery. Yes. <laughs> Montague had only just defected from Edward's side, so he was already viewed with some wariness anyway. And the cries of treachery caused panic that swept across the whole battlefield. I mean, you can imagine. That doesn't actually sound like it was De Vere's fault. It sounds more like Montague's fault. Yes, it really it, does. It's, it has been, some people speculate that maybe he had changed sides. Oh, it was just a ruse. Possibly. Possibly. Hmm. But Montague and Warwick were killed in the battle. Um, de Vere wasn't at the Battle of Tewkesbury, where Prince Edward, son of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, was killed, wiping out all hope for the Lancastrian succession. Although, in a way, that may have been good after we've heard what he was like. Yes, he would, I think. I mean, they're all, they're all terrible, but... He seemed especially so. Let's, let's take a sociopath and then encourage them to be that. Mm. That's kind of how it felt with him. Yeah, but he'd been fed it from... Day one. I was going to say mother's milk, but he probably didn't have mother's milk. I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) John de Vere fled to James III in Scotland. Now, the frustrating thing for de Vere and the other Lancastrians is that the re-adaption of Henry VI could have survived. It had considerable popular support and political backing, I mean, Henry VI might not seem much of a catch to us, but Edward IV was not at all popular at this time. He was, ah. he was at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. The failure of the re-adeption is purely military. The failure of the Lancastrians at Barnet and Tewkesbury did for any chance that Henry VI had of keeping the throne. But I suppose that is what battles were for in those days, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But De Vere, like Jasper, carried on the fight. 
although for this period of his life the evidence is sketchy. In 1872, a bill of accounts by the Deputy Warden of Calais indicates that De Vere was attacking the town. De Vere was attacking Calais? De Vere was attacking Calais. Why? I don't know. The I... evidence is sketchy. I don't know either. No. The following year, he was working as a diplomat for Louis XI, so that might be something to do with it. Oh, Louis was yes. spidering, spidering about, as usual, trying to create trouble for Edward, who was preparing to invade France, so De Vere was the man for the job. 1473, De Vere was back in Scotland as the Scots were preparing to wage war on England. Everywhere there's somebody who's got it in for Edward. Up pops De Vere. What did I hear? You're going after Edward? Can I join? English emissaries complained to Scotland that they were harbouring that rebel and traitor. And the Scots said that De Vere was no longer had safe conduct in Scotland. I mean, this may have been true. It may have been a bluff, but he did leave soon after. On the 19th of May, the Feast of St Dunstan, De Vere landed in Essex, but everyone seems to have known he was coming and he lost the element of surprise. He then stayed hovering, as John Paston put it, off the Isle of Thanet in Kent. Paston, incidentally, was keen to put some distance between himself and De Vere at this point, as the tension in the air was leading to a flurry of arrests. Mm. Then Louis XI pulled out of whatever scheme he and De Vere had cooked up between them. De Vere had sent Louis 24 seals of knights and one seal of a duke as a pledge of who would fight, who was prepared to fight against Edward. Okay. But Louis suspected fraud, you know, or he said he did, which is Louis we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He appeared to be convinced that de Vere had gone over to Edward, saying that de Vere kept his feet in two shoes. Which is a nice turn of phrase, but then you think, isn't that what we all do? Yeah. I, I have two feet, which means I have two shoes. Yes. <laughs> But when you read it, you sort of think, yeah, I know what it means. And then you think, hang on a minute. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't work. Louis' mistrust of de Vere, and just about everyone, partly stemmed from the Earl's exaggeration of how ready England was to rebel. And as you know, there's some dispute as to who this Duke was who sent the seal to de Vere to show his readiness to rebel. Some say it was Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter. Some say it was George, Duke of Clarence. Oh, so we don't actually have an image of that to determine no. who it was. Okay. And in the light of subsequent events, and given Clarence's links with the West Country, Clarence seems the more likely. De Vere spent some time drifting along the South Coast, privateering as he went. <laughs> that sounds so pleasant, but it, it really yes. isn't. <laughs> Let's pop out for a little light privateering. Yes, a little murder and mayhem on this open oh. seas. Edward IV had put the south coast on high alert, so there was nowhere for De Vere to land. So I suppose they, they needed to do that for food and yes. water. But yeah. When he reached Sir Michael's Mount in Cornwall, he had pretty much run out of options, so he, he seized it and moved in. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely, actually. I'm not surprised. It's very beautiful. 
and it is presumed that de Vere assumed he would be able to attract support to mount a rebellion from there, but if that was the intention, he was to be disappointed. The news of de Vere's actions in Cornwall took an inexplicably long time to reach Louis, who, presumably then realising that he had been mistaken in his view that de Vere had defrauded him, sent ships to help out. But unfortunately, with the time delay, de Vere had already surrendered a month previously. Hmm. De Vere had been besieged by Edward IV's men, led by one Henry Bodrugan, or Bodrigan. But his actions were a bit strange, and he seems to have been a very half-hearted besieger, even letting de Vere's men out to get food. <laughs> Isn't that kind of the opposite of what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to starve them out, not say, hey, mm. come on out. There's rabbit in this field, and there's <laughs> deer over here. I just imagine them, them them wandering out, just shouting over to Bodrug, and we're just popping down the shops. Do you want anything? <laughs> oh, yeah, get us a packet of crisps, would you? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, eventually Bodrugan, or Bodrugan was prevailed upon to take the siege seriously, and some fighting took place, during which Tavir was wounded by an arrow in the face. Ooh. Mm. Why is it always in the face? Like, if you think of it, Henry the Fourth. Had an arrow mm. in the face. That's why you only ever get an image of him in profile. Duke uh, of Buckingham got three arrows to the face. Yes. During the Battle of St. Alban. And then in Alban's. the Battle of Hastings, it was apparently an arrow in the face. It's always in the face. Never, never mm. lift up your visor in battle. Maybe someone shouts, Oi! And everyone looks Hello? around. Dunk! <laughs> <laughs> In the face, in the face, in the face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got to keep that part in. <laughs> De Vere's men were offered a pardon if they surrendered, and seeing their way out, they duly did. And then De Vere had surrendered on condition that he wouldn't be executed. And Edward IV was true to his word, and De Vere was sent to Hams or Am. That Castle. would be a very, very sketchy promise. Like, would you trust that man? What choice did he have? Really? I suppose, yeah. Yeah, and Am Am Castle, if that's how you pronounce it, is just outside Calais. Uh, it's a, it was a life sentence, life meaning life, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes, you didn't get time off for good behaviour no. those days. <laughs> In 1475, De Vere was attainted, and his lands already having been granted to Richard, Duke of Gloucester, so he got his little mitts on him in the end. In 1471, incidentally, another prisoner at Am at this time was George Neville. The former Archbishop of York, whom we last saw at his lavish enrollment feast. Right. A bit of anti-peristasis for Mr. York. But what had de Vere hoped to gain by his actions? I mean, after all, Henry VI had died in 1471. Prince Edward was already dead. Henry Tudor was not an option yet. But if de Vere had managed to incite a rebellion, who was he planning to replace Edward IV with? Well, there is still the Duke of Buckingham, who was also a Beaufort. He doesn't seem to have appeared. Not yet. Now, the answer appears to be that de Vere was conducting a vendetta against Edward. Mm-hmm. But it might have been that pure and simple. I mean, that one event, not surprisingly, coloured everything that de Vere did. But maybe he favoured George, Duke of Clarence, to take over from his brother. I mean, it seems impossible to believe that anyone would want George in charge. But George and de Vere were both married to Neville's. Mm-hmm. George to Warwick's daughter, de Vere to his sister. And family did mean a lot. George didn't get him to have his father's head cut off and then sit by him at a dinner? No. George has his good points. Yeah, I don't think I could forgive that kind of thing. No. 
I was thinking, oh, what possibly was De Vere using George in his vendetta against Edward? Oh, that's more likely. Yes, <laughs> so, that sounds a very Tudor thing to do. It really does. Pre-Tudor. De Vere, oh, we're still pre-Tudor. I, I don't seem to be able to get into the Tudor. <laughs> Please let me in. Sorry. <laughs> the doors aren't locked. <laughs> Just come on in. <laughs> we'll get there in a minute. De Vere could never expect the return of his liberty or lands while Edward was on the throne. So a regime change was all he could hope for, and George was the only one available. But as you say, Buckingham was a possibility, but he's not mentioned. Okay. While we're on the subject of family, what of De Vere's wife and mother while mm-hmm. he was on privateering, holding up in the Cornish castles and serving life sentences in prisons in France? Well, his wife, Margaret Neville, was still alive, and by April 1472, she was living at St. Martin's Sanctuary. She was relying on charity and what money she could make from her needle. King Edward pardoned her. For what? (laughs) She couldn't help being married to him. Yeah, you're alive. But it was only in 1481 that he granted her £100 a year on account of her poverty. So you can't help wondering what she thought of her husband at this time. I mean, he dolloped her right in it. Yes. And you, indeed, you wonder if he ever spared a thought for her. But Devere's mother was quite interesting. Devere's mother was in a bad way too. She was 63 and infirm. She'd already made her lands over to a number of trustees in the hope of protecting them. And she was living at this time in a nunnery at Stratford-le-Bow. When one day, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, turned up. Richard told her that King Edward had given him custody of both the Countess and her lands. And she apparently wept, but Richard demanded that she give him all her ready money, and then he made off with her. What a... She was kept prisoner in Stepney for a year until her trustees agreed to hand over her lands, and apparently he had threatened to send her, send her north to his castle in Middleham, and she was afraid that the cold and journey would kill her. Oh, they gave in. Richard claimed that Elizabeth agreed to surrender her land to him willingly for an annuity of 500 marks for life. But that was less than half the annual value. And luckily for Richard, she died the following year, so you only had oh to my. pay up once. I doubt. With with him, I seriously doubt he would have paid any other year. Ever. Again. I got the agreement. Goodbye. Well, yeah, it's not an attractive image, isn't it? A 19-year-old man, probably with a great retinue of thugs mm-hmm. in tow, browbeating an old woman in her sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And De Vere had to go through Parliament in 1485 to get the lands back formally stating that it had been got through compulsion, coercion and imprisonment. Although from one source I read, there had been no mention of that at the time. Oh. But De Vere gathered some, well, we'll come back to this, De Vere gathered some people to Parliament to testify to it. Now, how much of this description, this is a bit of a sideline, but how much of this description of Richard, Duke of Gloucester can we believe? I mean, maybe this story should be viewed with a certain amount of scepticism. Obviously, it was in the Tudor's interest to put him in the worst possible light, and just because de Vere found a group of people to testify that the transaction had been coercive, it doesn't mean it had been. Very true. Even if the de Vere family motto was vero nihil verius, nothing is truer than truth. I don't actually know what that means, but uh, anyway, sounds good. (laughs) And everybody's (laughs) truth is slightly different. Yes. In contrast to the first book I looked at, another said that a man who was thinking of buying one of the properties that Richard had gained from de Vere's mother had asked King Edward for advice. Edward replied, Meddle not ye with the buying of the said place, for though the title of that place be good in my brother of Gloucester's hands, and in another man's hands of like might, 
it be dangerous to thee to buy it, and also to keep it and to fend it. He said that the Countess was compelled and constrained by Richard to release and forsake her right in the said place. So he was warning him off, saying, it's all right for Richard to have it, because he's powerful enough to hold on to it, but if it were you, and someone comes along and takes you to court about it, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Okay, thank you. I did not follow that very well. <laughs> it's probably my reading of it. So if this can be believed, there was contemporary knowledge of De Vere's mother's plight <laughs> from none other than the king. Yeah. But Edward was prepared to turn a blind eye to such things because Richard was a buffer between the South and the Scots. Moreover, the family had form. Richard and George, Duke of Clarence, later deprived the widowed Countess of Warwick of her land in 1473, despite the fact they were her sons-in-law. Yes, and... Because of the, because of the fact they were her sons-in-law. Yes. Well, and you go after... Sorry, if you look at Edward, Edward quite often would take dower lands from women. Yeah, I was going to say he did the same thing to the Duke of Somerset's mother. Mm-hmm. Previously, so you can make up your own minds. Mm-hmm. But what a family... Everybody's a little nasty. Yeah, some are more nasty than others. I'd like to think we've we've evolved from that. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> I don't think we have. <laughs> On the 24th of August, 1478, De Vere jumped from the walls of Am Castle. But whether to escape or to commit suicide was not known even at the time. Do we know the height of these walls? Because if it's only a two-foot wall, that's not too <laughs> heroic. <laughs> It was a prison. Oh. <laughs> you don't generally imprison people behind two footballs. He, he, there was a moat as well. Mm. Mm. Jump and risk dysentery. Awesome. <laughs> well, Paston speculates about it in a, le in a letter, which it was. Um, right. Escape or suicide. But when you think about it, the Duke of Clarence had just been drowned in that vat of Malmsey. So it is possible that de Vere saw that last door closing because there'd be no one to take over from Edward now. And so no way for De Vere to restore his lands and titles. So suicide is not an impossibility. Now, I don't know how much news was getting back to him about how his perilous state of his family. I mean, not just his wife and mother, but his brothers too. So, you know, being powerless to help them, mm -hmm. he may have decided to end it. Do we know when Catholics decided that suicide was the ultimate sin? No. no. We don't. No. <laughs> Because I'm wondering... But people did commit suicide. They still did, yes. Very true. Yeah. But an escape would also be him thinking... I'm just thinking, if the king just killed his own brother, what what kind of odds do I have if I stay here? But he promised. He promised <laughs> not to kill him. <laughs> but anyway, who's that coming over the hill? It's Henry Tudor and his oh-so-competent Uncle Jasper. <laughs> Well, I thought he was. <laughs> Is he falling off his horse? <laughs> or more to the point, it's Richard III and the rumour that he'd murdered his nephews. Mm -hmm.
The Vere's jailer at Am Castle was Sir James Blount. Now, I'd always assumed that de Vere had sweet-talked Blount into going over to Henry Tudor's side, but in fact it seems that Blount was already disillusioned with the regime change and this disturbing rumours of the princes in the tower. So on the 28th of October, 1484, Richard III sent one William Bolton to collect de Vere and bring him back to England. So, yes, you might be right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not on, is it? Oh, but, but Richard didn't promise. Richard wasn't the one who made that promise. Oh, that's true. That's mm-hmm. true. But by that point, de Vere was on his way to France to meet up with Henry Tudor. <laughs> and so was Sir James Blunt, his jailer. And so, incidentally, was Sir John Fortescue, the Gentleman Porter of Calais. I love that title. Ooh. Gentleman Porter of Calais. Fortescue had been Sheriff of Devon and Cornwall, and in that capacity had actually arrested de Vere. Oh. <laughs> Obviously, uh, no grudges held. Maybe they treated him well. Yeah. It must have been a shock when Richard got to hear about it. The, Ox- the Earl of Oxford has escaped. And so is his jailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the man who carries the bags. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, Richard bewailed being greatly disturbed that distinguished men whose influence was strong among the people inclined with such eagerness towards Henry. And that's a quote from a Vatican manuscript. So, you know, word gets about. Mm-hmm. The defection of Blount, a member of his own household, made Richard more paranoid about how much he could trust those people around him, (laughs) with reason. According to Polydor Virgil, writing later, when Henry Tudor saw de Vere, he was ravished with joy. Henry couldn't leave his luck. We've heard how the ups and downs of Henry's prospects were at this time, in Jasper's episode. And then out of the blue, up pops this noble, staunch Lancastrian with his impeccable military credentials. Impeccable, well, as we talked about earlier. <laughs> if we if we ignore the Battle of Barnet and yes. the whole St. Michael's Mount fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you're talking to a six-year-old kid or you're watching them play soccer or, in your case, football, and they're <laughs> running towards their own goal. No, the other way, the <laughs> other way. <laughs> but anyway, he was manna from heaven for Henry, and Henry opened up the possibility for de Vere of reinstatement and getting his lands back and his title, or maybe in his mind he could go back and protect his family. So, you know, it was a symbiotic. Yes, very much so. More of a partnership. Yeah, according to Thomas Penn and the Brothers York, Henry Tudor had already made plans to spring de Vere from Um, but de Vere just beat him to it. I mean, it's probable that Henry and de Vere were in communication before this, especially with Blount's change of allegiances. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe letters got through that perhaps shouldn't have got through. But I prefer to imagine these two men on horseback, with the sun behind them, Fortescue, the gentleman porter from Calais, jogging, jogging along behind, carrying all the suitcases. <laughs> <laughs> and Henry and his men squinting into the light. Who is this? Who are these two magnificent horsemen? And that bloke with the bandy legs carrying all the bags. <laughs> And then the relief as the realisation dawns on Henry that his life has suddenly got a lot easier. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't have been many more than those three men since after you know, after the introductions. You know, Hello, I'm John. This is James, my jailer. Long story. <laughs> they heard that Richard III had sent a large part of the garrison of Calais to get Arms Castle back. So those left in the castle had sent to Henry for help. And so de Vere went straight back with a force to Um, which had been left in the care of Blount's wife, and managed to relieve the castle. So the whole the garrison were allowed safe passage to join Henry. And, well, you know, what a spectacular turnaround. De Vere returning to the place that had been his prison for 10 years. 
yeah. to take it and take all the troops at Henry's disposal. Yes. I mean, that, that's just crazy, isn't it? Yes. And later, in better years, De Vere gave James Blount a manor for life as a little thank you for releasing him from prison. Sounds like a pretty big thank you. But how did De Vere get on with Henry's other followers? I mean, they were all committed Yorkists, and they'd been quite happy under Edward IV. They had just fallen foul of Richard III. It didn't make them any less Yorkists. But I suppose if they could accept Jasper, they could accept De Vere. It's whether he could accept them. Yes, good point. But it should be remembered that when Henry landed at Milford in Wales in 1485, his army was a strange conglomeration of French mercenaries, Lancastrian diehards, and Yorkists mm-hmm. discontented with Richard III. Well, I haven't worked it out, but I should imagine that the Lancastrians were in the minority. Probably. Most of them had been wiped out. They'd been wiped out or they'd made some accommodation with the with Edward's regime. Right. Anyway, Bosworth. And it showed what faith Henry had in De Vere that he gave him overall command of the army. And it was warranted. Yes. <laughs> His troops were in what was described as a slender vanguard because they were hopelessly outnumbered by Richard's vanguard, which was led by John Howard, the Duke of Norfolk, who was at this time in possession of a considerable amount of De Vere land. Mm. So it was a real East Anglian grudge match. Mm-hmm. John De Vere Howard he was Elizabeth Howard, De Vere's mother's first cousin. So when I said family was important, maybe not that important. <laughs> not today. No. <laughs> De Vere told his troops that they were not to go more than 10 feet away from the standards, in attempt to keep order, because maybe he was thinking how quickly it all went haywire at Barnet. <laughs> <laughs> Stay here! <laughs> Henry's side was fortunate that the Duke of Norfolk was killed quickly, and De Vere's men pushed forward as Richard's vanguard leaderless fell back. And Richard, seeing this, decided to do his infamous charge at Henry, and the rest is history. Quite literally. Poor <laughs> <laughs> history, that's what we're here for. But Henry's dead. No, he's not. I was going to say, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not how this goes. <laughs> we'll try that again. But Richard's dead, Henry's crowned, and De Vere is a happy man. Bish bash bosh. <laughs> De Vere's attainder was reversed in the first parliament. Yay! But his, land, his lands were now owned by a whole bundle of people. Uh-oh. Richard III had been given much of it by his brother Edward and had taken more from De Vere's mother. But at least Richard's dead, so that might be easier to get back. Well, when he became king, he handed it out as rewards to his supporters. Oh. Yes. But it was all eventually sorted out, as a map of East Anglia showed 86 manors belonging to De Vere. What do you need with 86 manors? I don't know. I know that you don't keep them very clean when you have no toilets, but at the same time, mm-hmm. how often would you be moving in a year to use up every single one of those manors? He was also given several grants of wardship, which had the money rolling in, including one purchase from Richard Empson, the soon-to-be subject of this podcast. He would have to move. Mm, that didn't work. It was like 365 divided by 86 is 4.24. That, is that every four days you'd be moving? Every four days. It was, yes. Come on, come on, everybody. Off we go. Like, oh, God. <laughs> but we just, we finally unboxed half. <laughs> you wouldn't. You wouldn't bother. Oh. <laughs> Really, there were only three nobles that Henry VII could entirely trust and who could help him shoulder the burdens of Kingfish. Kingfish? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Words. 
merely the only three nobles that Henry VII could entirely trust and could help him shoulder the burdens of kingship were Duke of Bedford, the Earls of Derby and Oxford. That's Jasper Tudor, Thomas Stanley, Henry's father-in-law, and John de Vere. Mm-hmm. John de Vere was the great chamberlain at Henry's coronation and was made Knight of the Garter. His offices include Admiral of England, although he never actually commanded a fleet, though there was some discussion as to whether this role entitled him to shares in a whale fish that had been washed up on the Norfolk coast. (laughs) (laughs) Something else to eat! (laughs) And he was also constable of the Tower of London, where he was keeper of the lions and leopards. But I couldn't find out how hands-on that job was. I don't know. I did read somewhere that there was a certain amount of wine that was set aside for the elephants. So I can't imagine they were cared for traditionally. (laughs) Yes. Oh, God. (laughs) Judas. (laughs) That's the answer to everything. Shake your head. Judas. Yes. (laughs) Why do we choose the Tudors? They're awful. (laughs) (laughs) We we should have have done Buddhists instead. The next time we encounter De Vere is during the Lambert-Simnel uprising. I mean, if you can call it an uprising, since once they reached the English shore, as we discovered, no one was really that interested. De Vere seems to have been with Henry VII at this time. They weren't sure where to place their forces since they were expecting invasions from Ireland and the continent simultaneously. But as we've already heard, John de la Pole, Earl of Lincoln, son of the one we've already covered, landed in Lancashire and marched down meeting Henry's troops at Stokefield in Nottinghamshire. De Vere was in the vanguard, and it was his division that pretty much won the battle. It was a very uneven contest. As we've heard before, the rebel army was largely made up of ill-armed and ill-clad Irishmen. The chronicler Molinet said, They, the Irishmen, could not withstand the shooting of the English archers, and although they displayed great bravery, they were routed and defeated, shot through and full of arrows, like hedgehogs. Oh, mm, that's a lot of arrows. Mm-hmm. Next, we hear of De Vere marching north to exact punishment on the mob that had killed Henry Percy, out of Northumberland. During Henry VII's invasion of France, when he intended to fright Charles VIII, but ended up receiving a pension from him instead, as Charles was busy elsewhere and didn't want to be bothered with the English, De Vere was the only commander to see military action. He was given his own command of a division that included John de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk, which concerned the beating down of Arles. And I wasn't sure what Arles had done to deserve this beating, so I looked it up on Wikipedia. And it said, Arles has a rich and vibrant history as a military and trading post for the English from 1347 to 1558. But that's it. He didn't say what the rich and vibrant history was. It just has one. I need to go back to figure something out. You said which included Jean de la Pole, the Duke of Suffolk. I thought he he had just died. No, the Earl of Lincoln had died, not yeah, the Duke of Suffolk. Lincoln died. Yes. <laughs> de Vere was one of the 12 men granted a pension by Charles VIII in the Treaty of Etaples. De Vere's next military adventure was the Battle of Blackheath, 1497, where again he had the vanguard against the Cornish uprising, and he won quite easily. Sorry, that was a bit of a spoiler, really. We haven't covered the Cornish <laughs> campaign yet. <laughs> yes. Sorry, they don't win. No. <laughs> Henry VII must have had complete faith in De Vere, since he put him in charge of the three major battles of his reign, Bosworth, Stokefield and Blackheath. Why was De Vere always chosen as commander? Well, the obvious reason was that he was good at his job. 
even at the Battle of Barnet, he'd beaten his opponent. It just went wrong after that. Mm-hmm. But maybe another reason is that, as Richard III discovered at Bosworth, just because people turn up at a battlefield ostensibly to fight on your side, it doesn't mean they will. They may just not join in, like Henry Percy, Duke of Northumberland, or they may enthusiastically join in, but on the other side, like the Stanleys. Mm-hmm. So, but Henry trusted De Vere. He was not a disgruntled Yorkist, as so many others were. He'd only ever sided with Edward when there'd been no choice, and his later actions showed that he, you know, he must have had his fingers crossed the whole time. Yes. His trust was vitally important to any king, and maybe at this time especially to Henry. Yeah, since he's defending his throne all the time. Mm. And then Perkin Warbeck landed in the southwest. Incidentally, contemporary documents show that de Vere was paid twice as much as any other commander for the wages of his troops. And it wasn't that he was a caring and considerate employer, paying them his men twice as much. He was just very good at mustering a lot of men. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of letters in the Paston collection to, from, and about de Vere. And one of the reasons for this was that de Vere spent a lot of time trying to make sure that East Anglia was politically safe, mm-hmm. given that he was surrounded by families with distinct Yorkist tendencies. Because John Howard had been made Duke of Norfolk by Richard III. Well, we still got his family. I was just thinking, we just killed him. We? <laughs> <Yes, laughs> <it's> we, so <laughs> he must have had a son. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a son, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> Pastor was responsible for keeping De Vere informed about what was happening in East Anglia. Although De Vere once or twice admonished him for not being as well informed as he should have been. But he was magnanimous to his neighbours, who had fought on the other side of Bosworth. The Countess of Suffolk wrote to John Paston, saying... Him I dread most as yet, as hither I find him best. So she was obviously expecting the worst from him, and mm-hmm. he seemed to have looked after her quite well. And it was De Vere who questioned the pretender that everyone forgets, since he came and went without incident, Ralph Wilford, who confessed, and you do wonder what terrible things are attached to that word, that he wasn't Edward Plantagenet after all. He must have thought it was worth the risk, since Henry had been relatively lenient with Lambert Simnel and mm-hmm. Perkin Warbeck. But sadly for, for poor Ralph, Henry's patience had run out and Wilford was hanged. I don't even know that name. Ah, no, he was, yeah, he, well, he had a go. <laughs> yeah, they were all pretending. He thought, well, I'll give it a go. But yeah, it didn't pay, didn't pay for him. Anyway, that's De Vere's military and local political history. How did he fare in Henry's policy of tying up the nobility with bonds and recognizances? Yes. Just to clarify, bonds were written agreements in which people promised to pay a sum of money if they failed to carry out their promises. For instance, if someone was in charge of a jail from which people escaped. Recognizances were a former acknowledgement of a debt or obligation that already existed, so they would have to pay up if that obligation were not met. So Henry has both the past and the future tied up. And we'll hear all about that in Dudley and Empson's episode coming soon. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, De Vere did okay. I mean, it's possible that Henry wouldn't have dared extract promises from him since he needed him to be loyal. In fact, De Vere was sometimes used by Henry to extract recognizances from other people. He took 2,000 quid from Sir Edmund Hastings to ensure his future good behaviour, and he issued bonds on the household of the Earl of Suffolk, the son of John de the Earl of Suffolk of episode 3, after the Earl had fled overseas. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of those de la Poles. They're just confusing. <laughs> And they don't go away. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's been said that it was de Vere's unexpected return from jail that put the de Poles and the Fitzwalters in the subordinate role in the East and led to their rebellion. What? They're saying, wait, they're saying John de Vere made them rebel? Well, perhaps they, you know, they were pretty high up in East Anglia and then he came along and because he's got such strong links with the king. Oh, he took over. He's now the top. Ousted them. They might have felt a bit miffed. Okay. I mean, no, no one gets more miffed than the Tudor yes. nobility, do they? Mm-hmm. De Vere had been asked to be one of Prince Arthur's godfathers, but due to Arthur's early arrival, De Vere was nowhere near Winchester when he was born. They delayed the christening for four days, but bad weather delayed De Vere even more. Or as he put it, the season was all rainy. <laughs> <laughs> but like a true hero, he arrived just in the nick of time. He was years later at the reception of Catherine of Aragon, and he also conducted Arthur to the bedchamber on that did-they-didn't-they night. Mm-hmm. On the 20th of November 1499, Henry appointed de Vere High Steward of England, and this was for a particular purpose. De Vere then sent out a writ demanding that Edward Plantagenet, 17th Earl of Warwick, should oh. be brought before him. Uh-oh. Edward was brought to the court of his peers and the indictment was read out. Edward instantly pleaded guilty and de Vere passed sentence, as we heard in Edward's episode, that he should be hanged, cut down, disemboweled and quartered in the usual manner. Mm. Yes, you instantly go off him, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, it almost feels like he's brought out any time something bad needs to happen. Ah, yeah, I hadn't looked at it that way, but yeah. A couple of years later, De Vere was on the commission that found James Tyrrell, the man who confessed to murdering the princes in the Tower, guilty of treason, so that might be another time he was wheeled out. Mm-hmm. What did the Mafia call it? An enforcer. <laughs> I hadn't seen him as an enforcer, but um, yeah, now you put it that way. Francis Bacon recounted a story since assumed for several reasons to be apocryphal, about a visit that Henry made to De Vere's home at Castle Headingham. As the king was leaving, the servants all lined up in full livery. The king was very impressed and told De Vere so, to which De Vere replied, It may please your grace, that were not for mine ease. They are most of them my retainers, that are come to do me service at such a time as this, and chiefly to see your grace. The king started a little and said, By my faith, my lord, I thank you for my good cheer, but I may not endure to have my laws broken in my sight. My attorney must speak with you. Because as we've learnt from John de Pole's episode, keeping of liveried retainers was legal at this yes, time. Yes, it was. <laughs> and de Vere was fined 15,000 marks. Ooh, wow! Although, I say it, it's since thought to be apocryphal, that figure has not been discovered in the accounts. Oh... In Henry's later years, he and de Vere seemed to have drifted apart. De Vere didn't go to court so often. He wasn't made an executor of Henry's will. And maybe it was that Henry was becoming increasingly to rely on other people, like Dudley and Empson. Mm-hmm. And it's been suggested that de Vere wasn't entirely happy with Henry's policy of enmeshing people in death. In death? <laughs> <laughs> enmeshing people in debt, bonds and recognizances, although he himself is not affected by the policy. De Vere did come to court following the death of Henry, where along with Bishop's Fock, along with Bishop's Fock, <laughs> De Vere did come to court following the death of Henry, where along with Bishop's Fox, 
Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, and here she comes at last, Margaret Beaufort. Ah! <laughs> he assured the safe succession of Henry VIII, officiating as Grand Chamberlain at the young Henry's coronation. This is the third time he's an old hand at it now. Mm-hmm. As for his private life, he was married to Margaret for 40 years, which is pretty good going in those days. Mm-hmm. 14 of the first 20 years they spent apart. Which might have made it easier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she died in late 1506, or early 1507, when De was 64. And her death was followed by a lengthy mourning period of two years. Aww. After which he married Elizabeth, William Lord Beaumont's widow. How old was she? Younger. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> okay. She was quite a bit younger. No one knows if this was a love match or just a way of securing the Beaumont properties. Anyway, we get to see Mr. De Vere a little bit. He was apparently quite the dresser, because the inventory of his goods made after his death include ten gowns, which is a high number compared to similar inventories. Hmm. And also included in the list was a collar of fine gold of 27 S's and two portcullises with a great diamond in the red rose and a lion hanging upon the same rose with two rubies and a diamond upon the said lion and two great rubies and four diamonds and nine great pearls upon the S. Oh, my goodness. Valued at 90... <laughs> it's subtle, isn't it? Valued at 98 pounds and positively dripping with Tudor and Lancastrian symbolism. Yes, but also, I'm going to bring her up again, Margaret Beaufort. Yeah, the portcullises. Interesting. She's trying to carry favour yes. with everybody, isn't she? Yeah. Well, I looked up the De Vere family heraldic beast, because we were talking about that when we were looking at the images of Edward Plantagenet on the mm -hmm. mouse roll. And I was trying to find out the significance of the lion. Well, I think that probably refers to the Plantagenets. The De Veres were associated with something called the Cali Greyhound in the 15th and 16th centuries. The Cali Greyhound is described as having the head of a wild cat, the torso of a deer or antelope, the claws of an eagle on its forefeet, but the back leg of a lion or ox, antlers or horns, and the tail of a lion or poodle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They really did like mythical creatures as their badges. <laughs> yeah, but who would stick a poodle's tail on a mythical creature? <laughs> I it's have no idea. <laughs> oh. But it signifies swiftness. However, I couldn't find any representation of the Cali Greyhound on any of De Vere's coat of arms that I looked at. But there was the blue boar. And the blue boar appears on tapestries, also included in an itinerary. And it's also precariously balanced on the top of De Vere's jousting helmet. There are quite a few pubs called the Blue Boar, and I wondered if there were more of them in East Anglia. I, I did have a look. Now, it doesn't seem to be the case. There are Blue Boars everywhere, but there is a Blue Boar brewery in Norwich. Hmm. So might, might have a De Vere connection. His household accounts show payment to various minstrels, so it shows he had some interest in music. And it's interesting to see how the great houses borrowed each other's minstrels, since his payments included two minstrels of Prince Henry and four of the kings, as well as several from other nobles. So presumably, if you've got a good reputation as a minstrel, you could be hired out to do the rounds of the big estates, which yes. is quite interesting. Uh, like Henry VII, De Vere kept a very close eye on his accounts, signing off even relatively small items with his customary signature of Oxian Ford. John De Vere died at nine in the evening on 10th of March, 1513, at Castle Headingham. He was 71. Wow. Extra points to him for dying of old age in his own bed. 
De Vere was very aware of his lineage, commissioning a translation from Caxton of the life of one of his ancestors, Robert Earl of Oxford, whom some saw as a saint. Indeed, de Vere introduced Caxton to Henry VII. Hmm. And he also, also bequeathed money in his will to 19 religious institutions founded by his ancestors. He left a very long and complicated will. I did download it and start to read through it, but it was, it was so complicated due to the fact that he died childless. I was going to ask, because you didn't mention any children. Well, one, one source said he had... Uh, in fact, there were two sources that said he had a child. One said it was called George. The other one said it was called John. But every, everywhere else, they seemed to think he, he hadn't had any children. If he had had a child, it died while he was in prison. He died sorry, while he was in oh. prison. The main bulk of the estate went to his nephew, who proved to be a disaster but didn't last long, and then on to the cousin. And there were disputes between the cousin and de Vere's widow, Elizabeth, some of which turned violent but they were eventually settled amicably once the Duke of Norfolk waded in. Anyway, an exciting life, mm -hmm. but now he's dead. So shall we rate him? Yes. And fibbly. Intrigue. Well, he was leading a double life at various parts of his early life. He was at Edward's court, but his, obviously his heart was elsewhere. Mm -hmm. well, the trouble is, we don't know what he was pardoned for. I mean, that might have been dripping with intrigue, whatever it was he was doing. And he was pardoned multiple times. Yes, he was. Yeah, I thought if he was turning his jailer, James Blount, towards Henry, that would be intrigue. But it yes. turned out that Mr. Blount was already quite amenable to that idea. So I feel his intrigue is quite close to Jasper's story. So I looked it up. You gave him six and I gave him seven. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I thought they were quite similar. I was actually thinking a seven just because he did get all those pardons. So he obviously wasn't following what he was supposed to be doing for that particular <laughs> monarch. And then he ended yep. up in jail for 10 years. If that doesn't say that he's intriguing, I don't know what else is. And he was a pirate. Yeah, and he was a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much information. I don't know what information you'd have on it anyway, but yes, it wasn't much on the piracy. Yeah, I'm... I'm yeah, I'm going with a seven. You're going with a seven? Yeah, I'm thinking a seven or an eight. I think I'll go with a seven. It doesn't seem fair on Jasper otherwise, does it? He was intriguing as mm -hmm. well. Just as much, I agree. Antiperistasis. Rise and fall. Like many people of this time, his life was one of stupendous ups and downs. Yes. Following the execution of his father and brother, he was tainted with the suspicion of treason, but not attainted. Mm -hmm. uh, this event dragged him into the War of the Roses, where he had a disastrous battle at Barnet. He sided with Warwick and Clarence, then exile, then he was a pirate, then he was given a life sentence, then he escaped with his jailer and the entire garrison. Then he led the winning team at Bosworth and then at Stoke Field. He then built up a little empire in East Anglia, despite being surrounded by Yorkists. He ended up one of the top four people in the entire country. True. He avoided all Henry's bonds and recognizances, which so enmeshed others of the nobility, which implies that Henry trusted him to do his job and not to undermine his monarchy. Which is rare for Henry. It's rare for the nobles not to be trying to get the monarchy as well. Mm -hmm. He started as an earl and ended as an earl. But I think we must take into account the journey in between. Yes, I agree. It was huge. He he risked everything and lost everything and then had to claw his way back. I think mm. this is really big. I'm, I'm thinking either an eight or a nine because he didn't come from absolutely nothing and get all the yeah. way to the top. But he did get to the point where he had nothing. 
I think I'm going to go for an eight. Yeah, yeah, I've gone for an eight. I think, I think for the nines and tens, we want people that really started with nothing. Yeah, and made it for themselves. Yes, yeah, I agree. Martyrdom. Who knows what he'd have done, if anything, if his father and brother hadn't been executed. He may have just worked quietly on his estates, keeping his head down, like his father. He was in with Edward IV's court, and he could have stayed there. Many did, but he took an entirely different route. You know, early on, there were various points when he could have stopped him. He was pardoned by Edward twice, and he could have accepted that and you know, behaved, in inverted commas. <laughs> but like Jasper, he didn't give up. And also like Jasper, he did then paint himself into a corner where he couldn't go back. Yes. So I'm thinking similar to Jasper. Now, we both gave Jasper 5 out of 10 for martyrdom, but in retrospect, I don't think that was enough. True. It's too late now. We can't go back for Jasper. But I mean, our thinking was, from what I remember, that Jasper had no choice and that the thing he was trying to bring back wasn't worth bringing back anyway. Yeah. But I feel bad now for giving Devere more than Jasper since their situations are pretty similar. But I mean, I think we changed our idea about what martyrdom. Well, we were going to go with political and religious martyrdom. Mm. Just because we've got such a range of what people were willing to do and fight for. Yeah, with um, Margaret of Anjou saying, you've lost so much for my husband's quarrels. Mm-hmm. He really did, didn't he? He really did. He was... Ten years in prison. He was almost willing to die for him, but he did plea. So it's not a ten, and he didn't die for them, so it's not a ten. No, he... Why, well, he cracked under torture. We assume it's torture. It's not mentioned. Questioning usually <laughs> in the Tudor time kind of was, yeah. Yeah, I don't suppose they bothered bother with good cop, bad cop. They probably just went straight for the rack, I should think. Yeah. I'm thinking a seven. Because he didn't die. He was willing to negotiate to keep himself alive. And he did, a few times, give up. Like on that siege. Yeah, I'm not sure what else he could have done on that siege. It wasn't going anywhere, was it? No. I mean, if he hoped for other people to join. Mm -hmm. I think I'm still going to go with a seven. Yeah, I think seven. I think that's a good score. Okay. 14 for martyrdom. Sorry, we didn't say. So he's got 14 for Amphiboly and 16 for Antiperistasis. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Beating. Posterity. Uh, James Ross, the historian, describes him as one of the last of the great medieval noblemen. He says that from Henry VIII's time, nobles were more court-based, but de Vere's power was based on his own estate, which, given Henry VII's intention to clip the wings of such people, it did show he had remarkable staying power. Right? Mm-hmm. Does staying power lead to Batim? Now, when I'm saying if we were going by fame, there are very few people have heard of him. Very true. And if we go by what he left to posterity, other than giving money to the religious houses, mm. it didn't flow through to now. No, he was described by Flemish ambassador as one of the great, and we are told, the principal personage of this kingdom. I mean, he was second in command, effectively, wasn't he? But... Mm -hmm. Yes, I don't think it comes down. He didn't leave direct ancestors. The De Vere name carried on, including Edward De Vere. He wrote Shakespeare, apparently. But that's, yeah, that's a morass we'll launch ourselves into. But if I can direct you to Exhibit A on the, on the page of images I sent you. Okay. He's got an action figure. 
this? It look. What kind of a game is this for? I don't know. Some sort of miniature reenactment, I suppose. Oh. So yeah, I'm giving up a point for having an action figure. I mean, it shows somebody's heard of him enough to mm-hmm. make action figures, assuming that someone's going to buy them. Yes. I think. Well, I think the other thing that we can give him points for is the fact that he did help get Henry on the throne mm. and keep him there, which led to the Tudors all the way down to where we are now. Yeah, I think we gave Jasper points, points for, for the that. same thing. Yeah, but it, it's not it's not big. I think a three for me to cover those mm. three things: the money to the religious houses, which would have kept them going for a while. The fact that he helped get Henry on the throne and that he has an action figure. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with the three. Uh, yeah, I feel like because since he was the principal personage, he should be more famous, but he isn't. No, I seem to be mirroring you all the time, but I think three. Yep. Okay. So that's six for the team. Flaunt a bleeding flaunt. There's a picture of him. He's in full battle dress. Which makes it sound rather more intimidating than the actual picture is, which looks a bit cartoony. Yes, it does. His standard and tabard carry his crest. There's quarters of red and yellow with a star in the top left red square, which is called a mullet for some reason. Anyway, the mullet has straight sides and the estoile has wavy sides. I presume this mullet was what was meant by stars with rays, which so confused Montague on the Mm, the Battle of Barlow. Yes. A mullet, because I just bought a book about heraldry, as you can tell. The mullet can also indicate that you're the third son, which John wasn't. Oh. Um, he was second son. Second son. Unless there was, there was one that we didn't hear about. But I think this, this mullet is just his, his charge or the shape on his shield. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's got nothing, it's not a picture of him, but you'll see that that's, that's his jousting helmet. <laughs> what is that? I can see the boar, but it looks like they've stuck a rock on top of the helmet. Yes, as if it's not heavy enough already. They, yes, there's, there's, it's a sort of rock sandwich between the helmet and the, the blue the boar. boar. Yes, I, I mean, you can look at it in close-up and still be none the wiser. No, the boar is quite lifelike. But what is... I was trying to find out where you could see this, so I left a message on the Jousting Life website. But I just went back to look and see if there was a reply, but no one's updating it. The helmet's quite intricate with the embossing that it has or etching. For the, it's I can see a Tudor rose with the vines. I think it's called a frog shape, isn't it, that one? Yeah. I don't know how you see out of it, because the only gap is pointing upwards. Yes, but you tilt yourself slightly down so that you protect the neck. There is a documentary on jousting. <laughs> But I, I don't, I, why there is a rock on top of the head? It looks like a rock. It does. With a tongue. It looks like a very large brick that, that you find on the beach that's yeah. been um, yeah. eroded. Anyway, that's not him. That's him there with the little tunic and his rather strange knees. But he doesn't have, he gets one point for having an image at all, but there's, there isn't really a likeness. But I do think no. this one is much more representative of the fact that he was a warrior because he's wearing armor, whereas in when we, we did the John <laughs> Dillapole episode, it's like, that was such a lie. <laughs> well, and Edward Plantagenet, he was in armor, wasn't he? Yes. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he's used to wearing this stuff, isn't he? Yeah. And it's got his coat of arms on pennant. it. No sign of the Cali Greyhound, but can't have anything. Uh, it's with its poodle tail. I think I'm only going to go for a two. I'm going to go a bit higher because it, it, it is representative of who he was. I mean, it might not... True. You might not point to his face and so I recognise him. That's John DeVere. I recognise him from his action figure. Mm-hmm. He was a warrior and he's wearing his warrior's outfit and his mullet. Yeah, and it does look like the action figure was taken from that image. So, yeah, I'm going to go I'm going to go for a, a four, I think. Okay, I'm going to up mine to a three, but I'm going to leave it at that because there's no symbolism on there. It, it's just no. him standing in his armor with his coat of arms. But when we looked at pictures of John D- John Cabot, there was no way that was John Cabot. No. <laughs> it was just a person. Yeah. That is seven for a total score of 63, which I believe Whoa. puts him in second. It does. Puts him right in between Margaret Beaufort and Jasper Tudor. Hello. This is future Lucy butting into the podcast to say we messed up. He shouldn't have got 63. He should have got 53.5. I don't know what happened to the maths there. He's still ahead of Jasper Tudor, but only just. Well, what do you think? Our resident aggressive Cockney has to ask the question. Yes, he does. Are they too delicious or what? Me personally, I'm going to say yes. He had a wild life. He really did. And the fact that he managed to retain everything after he got to Henry, and Henry didn't make him pay up a ton of money. I I think and he outlived Henry through all yeah. those battles that he actually took <laughs> he place in. in. He outlived him. Yeah. No, I don't think I'll bother. I don't think he was that interesting. Oh really? <laughs> No, I. He's he's a definite yes. He is okay. Yay! Oh, I get to use the cheers. I haven't. I've only had the booze so far. Yay! Ah, <laughs> oh, well done, Mister Devere. Well done, you, you horrible thug. You. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you happy enforcer. <laughs> <laughs> Evil pirate. <laughs> Yeah, that's the other thing. He was a pirate. Yes. <laughs> he got to be a knight, a pirate, and a nobleman all in one life. <laughs> yeah, and a superhero as he came and over the hills super- to help Henry. <laughs> yeah, now I think he's uh, well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Right. Oh, oh. Next one, then. Okay. Okie dokie, let's find out what Lucy's next person is. <laughs> the noisy box. Noisy box. And we have. Oh my. Pope Alexander the Sixth. Right, is he the Porsche? I hope so, because I've just been reading about him. I've just been reading John Julius Norwich's book about popes. Yes, it is. It is Rodrigo de Borgia. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. I've already started in that case. Oh, maybe you should reach out to Pontifax and chat with Bree and Fry about him. Oh, this is going to be good. 
So because he is an external source and we don't want to step on toes, what we're going to be focusing on is how he interacted with England specifically. Well, we can touch on a few things, but we just yeah. want to make sure that we focus on this part. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of him being in the list. Well, that's good, because I was thinking, because we've got loads of foreign potentates and popes and whatnot in our boxes, and mm -hmm. so far, apart from Cabot, we've only pulled out English people. Yes. So, um, oh, and Welsh, of course. Sorry. Ooh. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> That is the end of our episode on John de Vere, 13th Earl of Oxford. We hope you've enjoyed it and will join us for the next episode on Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on Time. Receive what cheer you may, the night is long that never finds the day. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Goodbye. Goodbye.
greet them with words and a friendly Hey guys, I can't go on cause I am near death With his coat of mail and Chippendale, Beluga whale and monorail for you There goes John DeVere, Sir James Blount and Fortescue